why train stations are better than airports, how to find green hotels, and sustainable dining. This week, it's green travel. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast and website for foodies. This is the show where we explore the cuisine of the world. And this week, we're talking sustainable travel and dining with Richard Hammond. But first, let me tell you where I'm at. A Ginginha in Lisbon, Portugal. This is a famous little hole-in-the-wall spot on the Sao Domingo Plaza in Lisbon where they serve up the famous drink Ginginha, which is a kind of cherry liqueur with spices like cinnamon in it. It's delicious, comes in a little cup, costs you little over a euro for a shot, and you can get it with the cherries in it or without the cherries. It's delicious. People line up to get this stuff, and it's a great place to hang out. My brother's in town, so we are visiting some of my favorite spots in Lisbon, and A Ginginha is a great place to start. It's not too far from the uh, square, the central square, where the ferry drops you off in Lisbon. My guest this week is writer and filmmaker Richard Hammond. Richard founded the Green Traveler website in 2006. His website and newsletter is devoted to the issues of sustainable and eco-friendly travel. And Richard's been around the world, working in New Zealand and the South Pacific, volunteering in Belize, and now he makes his home in England. And that's where I'm talking to him today about his new book, The Green Traveler, an inspiring and practical guide to conscious travel. And why shopping at the local farmer's market is both a sustainable choice as well as a great experience. We also talk about trekking through the woods for a memorable meal in San Paul de Vence and what makes Toulouse, France special. Great conversation, very enlightening, and I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Richard, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. It's great to have you on the show, and congratulations on your new book, The Green Traveler. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. The place I wanted to start was, you know, this idea of just being green in general, being eco-conscious in general is such a wide topic. And then green travel, this is also a wide topic, I think. So, I wanted to start out by asking you, what is your definition of green travel? How do you think about it? Well, I think I, I think about it in terms of what are the external influences on, on it. And, and there are two things, really. It's the climate change emergency and it's the nature emergency. And, and so I think green travel is traveling in a way that's sensitive to those two big issues um, that have really come to the fore in the last few years. Of course, they're not new subjects. Um, but the the understanding, appreciation, and willingness to act on them um, is now very real and present. And people, I think, are looking to. Obviously, people still want to travel, but they want to do so in a way that addresses those, that in a way that you know doesn't add to the problems. So, how do we do this? It seems like a kind of a daunting task when you're when you're out on the road when you're traveling when you're on vacation to be eco-conscious what are some 
specific things that we can think about as just regular people who are uh, going on vacation? Well, I think that I mean, being a green traveler isn't about a big one-off gesture that you do, you know, once and that's it done. I think it's a mindset or it's a change of mindset in how we travel. So it influences everything that we do from, you know, how you pack your luggage to how you get out to the destination to the holiday and back again, you know, where you stay when you're there, what you eat when you're there, what you drink, where you go and the sort of activities that you do. So it's across the spectrum of everything and i think that's the change um that's that's needed really um if we're going to continue to travel in a way that's you know kinder to the planet so really it's addressing each of those things chipping away at each of those things and actually if you start thinking about each of those individual pieces of the pie of traveling then it's amazing how much you can actually make a difference well let's talk about a couple of those because i to me the biggest one is the transportation right in the United States, we think nothing of hopping on a plane. Of course, that's not the most environmentally f- uh, friendly choice that we could possibly make. Um, in some cases, it might be the only choice, though. But how do you break it down? How do you think of this in terms of being eco-friendly when we're talking about traveling, sometimes long distances? So I, th- I think there are t- two ways to look at it. Either you choose not to fly and, and, and look at what the options are. Or if there really is no alternative, then how to make you know the most of your flight, how to make your flight, choose the greener flight. So if I just approach the first one first, you know, if you if you decided that you're not going to fly, but you want to travel long distance, then I mean it depends how long, long distance. But <laughs> you say, for instance, in Europe, you know, dashing around in Europe, it's quite possible these days by train. There's a fantastic high-speed train network. Um, you know, I, I live in the UK. We've had Eurostar, which connects, you know, to the high-speed networks in Paris and Lille. And, you know, Spain has the most high-speed track in Europe. It's a fantastic network there. Uh, Italy's really doing lots of work now. And, in fact, during, you know, the pandemic and during lockdown, a lot of work was done, you know, building on the infrastructure for high-speed train travel. We're now seeing the the benefits of that. A lot more sleeper trains that you can whiz, you know, from one corner of Europe to the other overnight, you know, and it saves you on the cost of a hotel. But, uh, you know, you then have to, you, you, you spend the night traveling. And it's such a lovely way to travel. You know, you, you're sitting looking out of the window rather than being belted in at 30,000 feet. But then, you know, and there are other ways as well as a foot passion to ferry, ferry services. I mean, we all know how the, the network of ferry services there are in Greece, for instance, but all around the Mediterranean. Uh, and also, again, from the UK, getting across to Europe, there are any number of ferry services you can take. But the thing is, if you if, if if you really can't go long distance, I mean, there are other ways as well. I should say, of you know, traveling on a if you really need to go a long, long way, like you know, to the other side of the world, then there are ways of doing it that much slower. I mean, you can hop on cargo ships. There's a hmm. there's a network of of cargo ships that where they take uh, passengers, um, and also you know there is the long distance trains, the Trans Mongolian Trans you know um, expresses that you can can go right all the way to Beijing. So no ways to do it, but you might not have the time, of course. Um, and also they can be quite expensive going that far in that way. So if you are going to fly, you know, there are, there are, it's difficult to see how f- flying can be framed as green, given the amount of you know, um, carbon emissions that there are. Sure, sure. But there are airlines and operating procedures and different types of aircraft that uh, are greener so um, than others. So it's worth, trying to find those greener flights and there are a couple of initiatives that you, you can do to do that for instance Skyscanner now has a greener option the greener label option on its flight so when you look at the results for any of its flights you can see 
which ones are, are going to emit the, emit the less lesser carbon. And then that's, it's a great tool because immediately there and then you can see how much you'll save if you, you know if you choose one airline, one flight over another. Um, and then the other thing is also you can look at delve a bit more into what your carbon emissions are. Um, there's a brilliant German initiative called Atmosphere um, and .de, and that describes all the various initiatives that there are uh, within aviation uh, and what the outlook is, for instance, for alternative energies. Um, you know, a lot of airlines are looking at how they can switch to more um, to, to, to less harming modes of flying, and, and hydrogen is obviously on the horizon and at the moment sustainable aviation fuels but it's still quite a long way away i mean even the best optimists are uh, a decade away so and, and and this is the decade that counts isn't it as far as climate change is concerned and the nature of urgency so we we do need to look at you know if you consider whether you need to take that flight whether you can get there without flying um and, and mix it up a bit you know maybe maybe you know, if if you normally fly on holiday, could you could you go overland this year and maybe fly next year, and, and and not try and do it as frequently and be so as casual as we have been in the past. I'm a big advocate for train travel, and you know, looking at your website, I was, I guess I I guess I was surprised at the savings when you uh, carbon savings when you travel when you make the choice to travel by train rather than by air sometimes it was five times more carbon emitted when you flew as when you take the train it's staggering yeah and, and you know in europe it can be as much as 10 times because oh, of the energy is a source from from nuclear uh which is you know zero carbon emissions so effectively so yeah, it can be. I mean, the Eurostar, they quote 10 times less. You save 10 times less taking the Eurostar than flying from London to Paris, for instance. So it's enormous. But and, and, and even in domestic flying in the UK, it's it's yeah, it's something like five times the difference. Um, and also when you think about, um, you know, when you look at holidays, it's often 70 percent of the carbon emissions from the holiday are from the getting there. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of studies have been done of, of, take, of skiing in um, in the Alps. And looking at the transportation, the overall carbon footprint of a ski holiday, um, and even with you know the, the staying in these big resorts and the energy intensiveness of ski resorts, seventy percent of the carbon footprint of a holiday is from even still is from the getting there. So you know people are really trying to encourage taking the train now to to ski areas in in Europe because there's brilliant you know train network. You can take your skis much easier to take skis on on trains um and um you know and you get the transfers at the other end so you know it's a, a real possibility there of, of you know big change and even if you set aside the um the green aspect of this the ecological aspect of this in in my mind there's often a time savings as well it's often more convenient to take the train i think people think oh i'll jump on a plane it'll be so much quicker to get from point a to point b but as you pointed out with the high speed rail um, and the other factor being airports are often well outside the city center. All right. So you have to factor in the time when when you're going to the airport and when you're going to your final destination from the airport, you might have to add in another couple hours. It may be quicker just to jump on the train in Paris an hour and 40 minutes or two hours later. You're in Bordeaux. You can't you can't possibly do that by jumping on an airplane. There's no way. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you think if you look at flights of around the time of five, four or five hours compared with the train of four or five hours, it's, the, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same in terms of, you know, you've got your check-in for two hours, of course, before the flight. 
and the transfers. Sometimes it can be longer by, by flying. Um, but also the great thing about trains, of course, their train stations were often and have been, you know, since they were built, the hubs within cities. So you're going point to point, city to city, city to city centre. So when you arrive, you know, in Bordeaux at the train station, you're you come out of the the train station. There are you know, instead of all the duty free shops, there are buskers and bike racks, and you know you already feel like you're traveling like a local. You already feel like you're in the city. You were on holiday, and and the journey starts really by the time when you board the train. Uh, it's relaxing. You look at it and you see the the countryside change. You see the countryside morph into the the new destination that you're going to. Um, and you can walk around, play cards, chat, you know, it's 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 a really lovely way to travel and have lovely meals now. And the service on board trains now is 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 really good. Um, you know, it's a joy. I mean, especially going, you know, uh, in, in just after lockdown east, I took the train from London to Barcelona in a day. You know, it's very civilized early morning, you know, not too early morning train. Arrived there at seven o'clock in the evening. And um, but I just love getting to Paris and seeing on the departure board all those wonderful destinations that you could reach by train, Geneva and, you know, Zurich and all these wonderful in the south of France. And you knowing that you can get there, you know, on that train. And if for, for whatever reason you miss the train, you can get on the next one, you know, and it takes the stress out of out of uh, you know, fairly long distance travel. One last thing about train travel, uh, you know, I'm based in Portugal now and within the country of Portugal, there is quite good train service and bus service for that matter, but uh, quite good train service throughout the country. The, the issue is we're so far on the western side of the Iberian Peninsula and Portugal does not have great train connections to the rest of Europe. And I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that they're going to get a, a good functioning high-speed rail between Lisbon and Madrid and Lisbon and Barcelona so that we can finally feel connected to the rest of the EU. Yes, I think, you know, we did see quite a few services disappear, you know, a few years ago. I mean, and the train hotels were fantastic. You know, you used to get a train hotel from Paris to Madrid or Paris to Barcelona. And the one that went to Madrid, you could then connect and go all the way over to Lisbon. Um, but it's such a shame those services no longer. And yeah, absolutely. It'd be great to see them come back. But also, let's not forget coach travel, you know, in this, because if you have the time, you know, coach, coaches have come a long way from 20 years ago. You know, sure, sure. There, there is, you know, the great comfortable seats, they're much more spacious. There's Wi-Fi. You can, you know, watch films on board, you know, without worrying about your battery. You know, the toilets, they stop in great places, you know. And actually, coach travel is even greener than traveling by train. Um, you know, it's probably actually one of the greenest forms of motorized transport that you can take. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that the network of um, of coaches that there are in Europe is a real plus as well. And I mean, it's obviously a lot, it's a much more um, appealing to a younger market who are more budget aware, um, but also to people that have more time to do it. Let's talk about accommodations because this is another big part of travel is where you're going to stay. It's, you know, maybe after transportation, it's the biggest cost. And one of the things that kind of frustrates me is you'll look on a website or you'll do a booking and they'll say that the hotel or the lodge or whatever is quote unquote green. And you get there and you realize what they mean by that is just they don't change out the towels every day. Uh, that's their definition of, of green. Mm. How do you go when you find places that are eco-conscious, that are good places to stay for the environment? 
Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matrix of things. Just like when you're choosing a holiday, you don't just look on one website. You, you see what recommendations are. You see where your friends and colleagues recommend. You see what, you know, the book reviewers, the travel writers, the bloggers all say about it. You know, you sort of form an opinion based on lots of different sources. And I think it's the same with green. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there isn't one kite mark like the sort of fair trade kite mark or organic food kite mark that mm-hmm. there is in the food industry um, in travel so you know we do have to depend a certain amount on different sources but i mean there is there are certain certification schemes and, and it does depend on which country you're going to i always like to look at schemes that are national schemes because they compare like with like within one nation within one country rather than uh, international schemes because you know w- what's an issue in sweden is m- might not be an issue in you know, southern europe uh, i'm thinking of things like water for instance you know where we, we're such a scarcity in uh, in southern europe now um, and it's less of an issue in other countries so um, i think it's quite good to understand uh, to to use these national schemes um i mean there is and the, the, the key thing about that is that you have to look for those schemes where they actually send someone out to visit these places because as you say you just never know until you visit somewhere you know if they're doing what they say they're claiming to do um and then also if that scheme has to have been accredited by a third party an independent third party um to make sure that you know that the scheme itself is is verifiable um and you know there are some very good schemes you know uh, um there's a, there's an eu label scheme there's green tourism business scheme here in the uk um in 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 europe there's there's quite a lot of different schemes i mean actually in my book i've i've, I've tried to kind of put together as many as i can and i, I realize there are over 150 oh wow <laughs> uh, yeah um but um i think there are there are you know certainly you find two or three in each country which seem to be um you know above the rest uh, in terms of how much they've been verified so it's worth looking at worth looking at those but then also i think you know, you know some of the big online travel agencies now you know with um for instance a booking.com for accommodation does actually flag up those hotels that have been certified now so they're not just the hotels saying they're green they're saying that they've been certified by an independent um third party certifier so that's a real big step up and there's an organization called travelist um, which is bringing together lots of these big players to get some kind of standard across the industry for this. Um, Google even now um, flags up um, green hotels. It's beginning to roll that out, uh, the ones that are certified. So that's really helpful looking to see what's certified. But also just your own sense. You know, when you go to their website, you might not find them because they've been certified. And, you know, certification does often come with a cost for the hotelier. So, mm-hmm. so you know, many of the good ones you know, decide that they don't want to go down that route. They prefer to spend their money on being greener uh, rather than telling about the people about it. But, you know, so when you go to their website, I mean, one of the key things I think is, is that messaging throughout the website or is there just one page on its own that says sustainability and that's where it is and, and it's hidden away somewhat. What you want to know is that when you hear about the food, you hear about why the food is sustainable. And if you go to the how to get here, you're told the sustainable way to get there, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you go to the rooms and you find, you know, what's the bedding like? Well, it's made from sustainable products. So it, it's across the board. Uh, and then you get a sense that actually these people really mean what they're saying. And then, of course, the other thing is, I mean, it's very difficult as a traveller to really know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, you might think that you're staying in a very green place because it's got lots of recycling bins. 
but there's some big oil burner out the back that's uh, you know oh. that's uh, fueling the whole place and right, conversely right. you might you might not see any recycling and wonder where all the recycling is but actually the um you know behind the scenes it's all alternative energies and zero carbon emissions in the heating electricity so it can be very hard and that's why it is quite good to rely on certifications because experts will have gone in and made an overall assessment but equally you, you can still you can still give feedback as a traveler and say, well, you know, you, this place called themselves green, but there wasn't any recycling, you know, all we could see with the towel issue, like you say, what's going on. And, and that feedback does signal to the owner that travelers care about these issues now. And the more people that feedback and, and pick owners up for what they're doing or what they're not doing, the more it drives change. Let's talk about uh, dining sustainably because I love eating <laughs> and one of my one of the one of the main reasons I love to travel is to discover, you know, new dining experiences, new food. And what do we do when we're being conscious about uh sustainability? What kinds of things do we look for when we're traveling as far as dining goes? Well, I think yeah, food is is a great way into sustainability because you know so often when people you know, I, I told about green travel and they sort of think, oh, no, it means we have to go, you know, making hedges for a weekend and we have to do some kind of, you know, somehow, you know, it, you know, it's not particularly inspiring. But actually, food is a brilliant way to convey the benefits of choosing sustainably. I mean, for instance, if you talk to someone about, you know, food miles and 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 how much carbon is used in, in, in bringing your food to the table. It's like, okay, yeah, we get that. But how does that impact what we're actually eating and the, the quality of the taste of what we're eating? But then if you show someone the fish, you show the fishermen going out, bringing the catch in, cooking it in front of you and showing you how to cook it. It's a fantastic way. And you say, look, this is where the food miles are zero. And, you know, this is, it's fresher and it looks and tastes brilliant. And then people start thinking, well, yeah, maybe there's something in this sustainable thing. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, that the, 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 the idea that we can, you know, somehow have to compromise in this new world of, of traveling, I, I don't think that's necessarily so. I think we just have to make better choices. And within the food industry, there's been a sea change in um, the provision of more sustainable options. I mean, there's, you know, and, and I think that comes around by you know, that's come about by people looking at, you know, what's what's the cost involved in bringing all this food to the plate, but also what's the quality of food. And, you know, I mean, if you talk to the best chefs, you know, we'll always say that that, that fresh, fresh food that hasn't had to travel very far is most more likely to taste better. Um, and uh, and it's and it's and it's fresher on the plate and looks more interesting. Um, so I say, you know, look, looking for the looking for those that seasonal food um, that, you know, will be, you know, won't have been air freighted, you know, for instance, or if it has, you know, you, you, you want to know that, that, that the food that you're eating is, you know, has come from not too far away is seasonal. It's related to the region in, in which you're traveling, because actually that's you know one of the purposes of traveling is to, you know, is to meet new cultures, see new experiences. And what better way than to um, to, to taste the culture from their food? Um, but I think that, um, you know, one of my bugbears is people talking about local food because it's sort of meaningless because what does local mean? I mean, I've seen it applied to, um, you know, a whole region or I've seen it whole, applied to a whole country, you know, and then, it, and then it doesn't really mean much. But what I really love seeing is when people name the businesses um, behind the ingredients. Yes. And then you get a real sense of the connection with the locality. I mean, there's a brilliant place for a, a, a restaurant called Prawn on the Lawn where actually they tell you the, 
they have, they give you a sto- the story of all the suppliers, and they even say things like, "Oh, keep an eye out for Joe. He might turn up in the restaurant in his oil skins." You know, and then you just get this sense that the thing that's on your plate has come from a friend of theirs or you know, a supplier who's who's gone and got that locally, and and that and it it tastes better because of that. It does taste better because it's fresh and it's local. Um, I, I like to say. You know, if you're in North America and a restaurant is serving strawberry shortcake, let's say, in January, it ain't going to be that good. <laughs> you know, the strawberries that they're bringing in from, hey, New Zealand grows great strawberries, but they're not going to taste good because they're not picked ripe. And they've been, you know, they've traveled on a ship for 6,000 miles or however far they've gone. Um so it's, uh, you know, this is something to really, really think about. But also the point that you bring up, Richard, is now you have a wonderful story. There's a wonderful atmosphere with understanding where this food actually came from. And it makes your experience so much richer. Yes. And I think once you've once you've tasted and heard that story and you feel part of that story, when you remember the place you went to, you remember it because of the story. And you and you remember the food and the experience that you had, but you remember the story most of all. And that's the thing that when you're thinking, when you're recommending a place to someone, the story springs to mind and it's an easy thing to pass on. I mean, how many, you know, it's harder to kind of find different ways to describe a fantastic um, salad. But if you tell the story of how that salad came to be and where the anchovies came from, it's it's much more compelling. And it's much more interesting a story when you pass it on to your friends or, you know, onto feedback sites. One thing that I, I've talked about many times on this podcast, and I think it hooks into the sustainability idea, is that one of the things I really like to do when I go to a new place is go to the local produce market, the local fresh farmer's market, um, and buy some fresh produce, buy some locally baked bread and maybe some cheese, and just have a picnic in the local park. Um and, you know, this is this is another idea of, yes, you have a great experience because you're going to the park and you might, you know, you might run into somebody, you might meet somebody or you just people watch. But also you are thinking in terms of this zero kilometer idea. You're supporting a local farmer and guess what? It tastes a lot better. So I always recommend, please go to the local market, uh, get get your supplies for a picnic. You save money and you have a great time. And there's no better way of connecting with a locality than seeing that those ingredients from that locality. It's better than any holiday brochure. Let's talk about a few of your favorite places to visit with great food. Um, so you've traveled so many different places. Is there are there a handful of places that stand out to you? You think, oh, this was a um, especially wonderful place because of this experience or because of this uh, dish that I had. I think that you know the, the things that jump out at me, the things that surprise me. So, for instance, Catalonia. You know, I I had been to Barcelona before, and I had been into the the Pyrenees. That, that you know, I lived in Toulouse in France for for several years, and used to go over the border into into the Spanish Pyrenees, but wasn't quite aware of how the, the size and extent of Catalonia. And the food was unbelievable. I'm, I'm, I've been back three times since um, for various filming projects and the food is exceptional and variety of it and 
um it's this got really strong sustainability credentials so catalonia always jumps out to me when people ask me about the food i mean you know of course yeah italy is always is always up there isn't it, it has to be uh and, and france i mean you know i lived in france so i always love going back and, and, and trying new things there um but i think you know i what i love one of the things we're just talking there about you know talking about going to local markets i mean it's a great way i always like getting out on a bike actually when i get somewhere just to because you can get around places quite quickly on a bike um uh, quicker than walking and cycling is a great way to get to see a place but also as well as going to markets and i absolutely agree they're great a great place to head to i always like seeing sort of pop-up restaurants that there are pop-up places mm. and i went to a fantastic place it's um it's in a place called Killybegs in uh county donegal in ireland and there's okay. Killybegs seafood jack what a terrific place that is and that and to me that's that you know it's you know the, the, the fish they sell is the fish that's just landed right there in front of you and um you know and they serve it up in, be- in, a, in a beautiful mixture of different kinds of fish and um and, it, and it's just a it's a really great fun uh part of the world um, and I always think, you know, actually that, you know, it's, I immediately think of the taste and the locality and what the story was. And that Kelly Beggs always jumped out at me, even though it was just a fair, you know, it's a fairly small little, um, shack on, on the side of a Harbor, but that it sort of tells me everything there, um, about, you know, what it was like traveling. Those little finds are just the absolute best, aren't they? They are. And, and, you know, it's great when you find them yourself. Yeah, and and I, you know, I'm a great believer in obviously in reading what other people have written because you, you know, you can't. If people, someone's actually been to somewhere, it's great to read what they say. But equal, I try and um, you know, limit it a little bit because I want to find places out for myself. Um, I don't mean you know just with the old guidebooks. You know, one of the strengths of the old, you know, the old, you know, the lonely planets of the world and the rough guides that we had here in the UK and. Uh, was that you would read it and you'd feel like because you'd read they they were quite extensive and you felt like you really got to know the place before you'd even got there and then when you then found one of the places that they'd mentioned it almost felt like you'd found it yourself <laughs> even though it'd been recommended to you um and um yeah I, I, and I, I always think that you know it, this the spontaneity of travel that that that's one of the great things isn't it and and when you come across something by chance because someone had, you've gone to a place that someone's recommended and the owner is there said actually you know tomorrow why didn't you go to this place over the hill and you go there and um yeah it's it, it, it turns out to be some amazing place i mean i do remember in the south of france going to a there's a wonderful um tree house and natural swimming pool um place called orion and uh the owner said look there is a place up in uh, up in the hill it's opposite saint paul de vance which is a medieval village um and um he, uh, she said oh if you you know if you want to there's a very intimate restaurant i mean they only really serve three or four covers a night but it's just fresh fresh fish that he'll cook up for you in front of you and you have to go up through the woods and it's slightly tricky to get up there but hmm. you know give it a go and you know it was the it, i can't imagine a, a nicer way to sit and have a lovely beautifully prepared um fish meal looking out over the the medieval you know walls of saint paul de vance and and it only came about because i t- happened to be chatting to the owner um and, you know and i think it's those insights that you get from talking to people that can make all the difference you mentioned that you lived in toulouse and this is a place that i have not been to in france yet and it's on my list it's a place that i i've had <laughs> on my list and for whatever reason we have not made it there yet so can can you just uh, for my own personal <laughs> gratification can you tell me something about uh eating in uh toulouse what it's like there what's uh, unique about the food in toulouse richard well it's you know it's part of a part of southwest france 
that's been relatively untouched, you know, and, and it, it used to be the capital of, of, of southern France, and, and it's a very old city, but it's also a very populated student city. When the students go, <laughs> it's very quiet, um, but there are some fantastic um fantastic restaurants and you know they, there's a brilliant market there i mean that that sells any kind exactly what you're saying any kind of um cheese that you could imagine any kind of uh that the herbs that they sell they're incredible and they've got fantastic all, all different ranges of uh, things i mean that, that i mean it, it's a very basic thing to say this because i mean f- real foodies will will probably turn their nose off what i'm saying but the, the goat's cheeses there are absolutely fantastic and the oh, salads nice. and the honey that they have with them it's just it's uh you know it's worth going for just for that um and, and <laughs> that's always my go-to thing um when i go there um but the market you know the, the victor hugo market there is enormous and you know you can pretty much buy anything you want in france and of course they have the famous toulouse sausages uh which are absolutely delicious um so um yes go <laughs> <laughs> okay well now that i'm in portugal it's a lot it's a lot easier within reach we can probably do it in uh you know uh in a few days to get there uh slow by train of course um Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Richard. I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this conversation is that you have shown how being um, sustainable, being ecologically conscious doesn't mean necessarily sacrifice. In fact, how it can mean having a truly richer experience than you would otherwise by jumping on a plane and uh, all those things that we talked about. So, um, Thank you so much for being on the program today and congratulations on your new book, The Green Traveler, an inspiring and practical guide to conscious travel. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, there you go. Great tips, great insight from Richard Hammond. I've got a link to The Green Traveler website as well as his book in the show notes. That's at radiomisfits.com slash DED179. You know, if you listen to this show with any regularity, you know that I love language. And one of the words that I find fascinating is scheme. Richard used the word scheme several times in our talk. And in British English, it means something quite different than what it means in American English. In British English, it's more of like a large-scale plan, like a big housing development could be a scheme. But in American English, it means something quite different. And in American English, it's something more like a sinister plot. So me being very American, whenever I hear the word scheme, I think something diabolical is afoot. Of course, that's not what Richard meant at all, but it just shows the difference in the language between British and American English. Anyway, it's been great hanging here at A. Jean Genia in Lisbon. It's a definite must-stop when you come to visit Lisbon. you got to try the Ginginha. It's just a fun experience to stand out here in the square and take the shot and enjoy the cherry that comes at the bottom of your glass. I've also, in the past, I've posted on the blog about the Ginginha grandmas in Lisbon. They're the ones who open up their houses and apartments and put a little cardboard table out front and sell shots of Ginginha on kind of the gray market. So I'll post a link to that story from a couple months back in the show notes as well. 
uh, radiomisfits.com slash ded179. Well, uh, that'll do it for this week. Next week, we are in Hanoi, Vietnam. Until then, the website is open at destinationeatdrink.com. I just published a story there about uh, the square in my town in Portugal, in Stubel, Portugal. It's about 35, 40 minutes south of Lisbon, and it's the main square in my town of Stubel, Praça de Bocage. It's a great little place, the main square in town, and I uh, posted about the history and why it's such a great place to hang out when you come down to Stubel. Get that at destinationeatdrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who is so eco-friendly, he actually hugs trees, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.